The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Dominican community, Edward Combin, African-American community, Italian community, the Irish community. All I kept hearing was Edward Caban, Edward Caban, that he was the right person to be the first deputy commissioner and to ascend to the position of being the police commissioner of the city of New York. On Monday, New York City Mayor Eric Adams officially introduced Edward Caban as the city's first Latino police commissioner, following former Commissioner Kichan Sewell's sudden departure last month. The ceremony took place at the Bronx Precinct, where Caban began his law enforcement career more than three decades ago as a police officer. A young Puerto Rican kid from Parkchester, standing on a footpost in the South Bronx, just like thousands who came before me and thousands who have come after me. Commissioner Caban will lead the nation's largest police department at a critical time. Together, we will build upon our successes and continue to drive down crime and improve the quality of life in our communities. Joining me is an expert on policing, Jeffrey Fagan, a professor at Columbia Law School. This is a historic appointment. Tell us about the new commissioner. He's uh, held command posts in the department for uh, many years, experienced both at the patrol level and uh, up through the ranks to the managerial level and the executive level. So um, he certainly has the experience and qualifications for the job. Latino officers make up the second largest demographic group after white officers in the department. So how important is it that he's the first Latino commissioner? Well, I think it has important um, expressive value, showing a commitment to the Latino population of the city. But beyond that, I don't don't know there's any particular significance. There are Latino officers in the department, but there are also many other officers. So having them, at least at this stage historically, get representation at the command ranks is an important step. Is this a critical time for the police department? It's always a critical time for the police department. We're just coming off a homicide epidemic that uh, has lasted for roughly two years. And although homicides and shootings are going down quite dramatically, both in New York and the rest of the country, it still is at a level that is of concern to the public. So it's a, a very fraught time for the department. The department has suffered losses through retirements. They haven't been recruiting quite as well. I know that they're um, struggling to put into place uh, recruitment and, I guess, policy steps that would make the job more attractive. And there are trust issues within the communities. Going back to the stop and frisk era, they're still living with the they're living with the legacies of stop and frisk, which sold a lot of distrust in the non-white communities of the city. 
some criticize the department and say under Mayor Adams, the NYPD has brought back more aggressive law enforcement strategies you were referring to that fell out of favor in recent years. The department is returning to the aggressive police tactics that got them into trouble in federal court. The federal court, as you know, in 2013 in the Floyd case, found them to be in violation of both Fourth and Fourteenth Amendment uh, constitutional standards, meaning racially disparate policing and also um, unconstitutional searches and seizures. They are returning to that policy, and some would argue that they've never abandoned the policy. One of the things that was characteristic of the last, say, decade has been that they have uh, stopped recording the number of stops, that nobody really knows the number of stops that they're making. So it's really hard to gauge whether they're in compliance with the federal court order. And because there's no strong data on the number of stops, um, we really can't tell the extent to which they are still in violation of the federal court order. But the most recent assessment by the federal court monitor shows that in the new policy under neighborhood safety teams, they're still in violation of both the Fourth and Fourteenth Amendments. So I think there's a real problem um, gaining the trust of the community, even at a time when people want effective policing, but they also want policing that's responsive to the communities and the needs of the communities, beyond just simply um, the presence of the police. So it's worrisome that he's inheriting a department where they don't seem to be able to cure a long-standing set of racial disparities and constitutional problems that date back uh, over 20 years to the late 1990s and through the decade of the 2000s. Mayor Adams renamed those units, the anti-crime units, neighborhood safety teams. But as you mentioned, a federal court-appointed monitor found in June that they stopped, frisked, and searched too many people unlawfully, and almost all of them people of color. Exactly. So one way to interpret those data is that progress has not been made since the federal court monitor was put into place following the Floyd opinion in August of 2013. So we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of the Floyd opinion, and it seems that the same problems are persisting in the policing model that is put in place, I guess, by his predecessors. And now he's inheriting and doesn't seem to have made any statements suggesting he's going to rethink it. When the court-ordered monitor finds that, that there is unlawful policing as she described it. Mm-hmm. I mean, what happened? Is nothing done about it? She will have to go to court. She's issued a report. The report's in the public sphere. Everyone can read it and comment on the details. I think it's a fairly good report, methodologically and also conceptually. So she's issued the report. She's issued a challenge through the report to the federal court saying there are still her problems. The federal court has to ask the police department to, to submit a plan or respond to the, to the uh, report and say, how do you plan to remedy this and how would you reduce the racial disparities and the levels of unconstitutional policing? If the department does not respond, then the federal monitor can seek a contempt of court order against the police department, and then the police department will be under even stronger requirements to remedy the situation. Mayor Adams ran as a law and order candidate and, you know, former police captain. Do you think he feels he has a mandate from the public, you know, for a strong police force? Well, you know, he said he's going to return to the policies that he believed were effective. Whether those policies were effective is something that's been debated. And there's really no consensus as to whether those policies were responsible for the dramatic crime drop in New York from over the last 20 years up into the pandemic. What he did say is we're going to go back and reinstitute those policies, but we're going to do it in a better way. Well, so far, he hasn't been able to do it in a better way. And again, as the federal court monitor reported, um, the same problems persisted now that persisted 10 years ago. 
so what do you think the new police commissioner can do about it? Because I understand that Adams is very, shall we say, hands-on with decisions in the police department. You anticipated my response, Uh. Jude. In New York, certainly under Mayor Adams, there's only one police commissioner, and he's it. Everyone else serves to execute his policies. The policies that were put in place under the previous mayoral regime by three different commissioners, going back to Bratton and then O'Neill and then uh, Dermot Shea, they were designed by those commissioners independently of the mayor. And in fact, often in opposition to what the mayor, um, Mayor de Blasio, might have done himself. So I think the, the history of autonomy for the police department from the political structure is well understood. Sometimes that works to the benefit of policing. Sometimes that works to the detriment of the public. Um, we saw that during the stop and frisk era under Commissioner Kelly. But I don't know what the latitude is going to be for uh, Commissioner Caban to reform or change the process that's been put in place. I think it's a campaign promise from Adams, and he's going to be hard-pressed to deviate from implementing that or addressing that promise. So the first female police commissioner resigned after only 18 months. And she didn't give a reason why, but reportedly she had far less freedom than prior commissioners to make promotions and appoint her own team because she was being micromanaged. And she had far less latitude to discipline officers. I think the facts speak for themselves, and um, she really didn't have autonomy. She had to clear everything through a deputy mayor, uh, Deputy Mayor Banks, and ultimately Deputy Mayor Banks and Mayor Adams weighed in on her performance. She did not have the latitude. She did not have the independence that I think any any police commissioner would demand with respect to those two things. If you have to manage a department with 50,000 employees and 30,000 patrol officers or more, you need to have some ability to to hands-on manage what goes on in that department. And that includes promotions and discipline, promotions of people to command, situa- to command positions, and um, discipline of officers who um, violate both internal policy and the law. And if she didn't have the ability to do either one of those two things, then uh, it's hard to say what her ambit was. And so uh, it made sense for her to resign. It's unfortunate she was deeply popular with the police department and with the troops at a time when morale was really pretty low. So um, Mayor Adams put her into a situation that was untenable and uh, much to his own detriment. Now, we don't know if Commissioner Caban can rectify that situation. My guess is that he will enjoy some support from the department, um, from the rank and file, because he did come up through the ranks. But I think it remains to be seen how he implements policies and whether or not they're consistent with what the officers are thinking and feeling is the best interest of the city. Speaking about morale, there's also a staffing crisis that he's going to have to reverse. How do you improve morale? Well, I think it's ironic that this is a problem because I think Commissioner Sewell had taken great steps to improve morale. She was very much respected and admired by the rank and file, in other words, patrol officers, and, and, and through the ranks of the department. What he can do, what Commissioner Caban can do to improve on that remains to be seen. She was a very visible presence um, at all many different, both ceremonial and, 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 and more strategic events. Uh, she was always on the scene when there was a an officer injured. Uh, she was present at ceremonies, uh, hirings and promotions and so on. She demonstrated her support for the officers. I think the fact that she didn't discipline officers probably earned some respect for her, although that's not a very healthy way to get respect. Whether Caban can repeat that um, it remains to be seen. He's not been a public figure during his time in the police department, so it's hard to predict how he's going to perform on the job. Sula was an unknown and certainly made her 
presence and her style and her, I guess, her politics known uh, through her actions. But we don't really know much about how Kabam will do in a job that requires him to reach down to the lowest ranks of the officers. But he certainly did have a very high-ranking position with respect to command. And so he was known to the, to the officers. Mm-hmm. Whether they will respond to him in the way they responded to, to Sewell, uh, we really don't know yet. Apparently, he had some run-ins with department oversight agencies like the Civilian Complaint Review Board. And now he's going to have to handle officer misconduct. Tell us about the disciplinary matrix and whether there's a dispute over it. They're trying to revise the matrix now. I understand there's a series of meetings that have been going on to to reconstitute the matrix. The matrix is essentially a grid that says for certain kinds of violations, you receive certain types of punishments. So it becomes fairly predictable, kind of like a sentencing grid that that criminal offenders face when when they go to court. So it makes it standard and uniform. And so officers kind of know what to expect if they're found to have violated department policies or violated the criminal or, or civil law. The problem with the, with the matrix wasn't so much the substance of the matrix as it was the failure to implement the matrix. I don't think that there was a fair chance or a fair hearing on the matrix. I don't think we have enough data on discipline because the department was reluctant to issue any discipline. It could be that the matrix is perfectly fine and all it takes to make it effective is some political will on the part of the leadership of the police department to use the matrix and apply its its, uh, standards. So we really don't know. Caban will also have to keep the crime rates down. How much do the police have to do with crime rates, and how much is it cyclical or due to outside factors? Police have some effect on crime. That's indisputable. How much of an effect is highly disputed. Some people think it's important. Some people think it's, it's relatively minor compared to larger political and economic and social forces. One way to think about policing and crime is to think back about the experience of the pandemic and the homicide and shooting waves that, and, and crime, violent crime waves that happened during the period of the pandemic and to compare that to prior periods. So, for example, 30 years ago during the crack epidemic, we had the same spike. The homicides increased. It was the, re- the record level of homicides in the city was in 1991. It lasted a couple of years. Starting in 1991, they went down about 10 percent and kept going down through the 2000s. So one way to think about this is that homicide goes in cyclical waves. Uh, We had a wave in the 60s. We had a wave in the late 70s and early 80s. We had another wave through the crack epidemic in the early 90s. And we have another wave now. Um, And throughout each one of these, um, uh, homicide goes up and homicide goes down. And shootings go up and shootings go down. Um, It seems to be sort of a natural process. And it doesn't really matter what steps the police department takes and puts into place because these cycles seem to recur with some kind of regular basis. So how much credit can the police department really take for reducing crime when we've seen had the same experience before and uh, the same policies were put into place and um, no new so there were new policies now and I mean, let me take back we've seen we've seen these cycles come and go before um, whatever policies were put into place in previous cycles don't don't seem to have stopped a, 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 another cycle from developing uh, some period of time later. So it's hard to say that the police deserve credit for bringing the homicide rates down. And also the homicide rates are down all over the country, which suggests there's something more of a, let's say, a natural process to that rise and fall or that epidemic model. Um, And so how much police can take credit for that in one city or even a couple of cities uh, when policing varies in substance from one city to the next and just simply um, are repeating a, a historic process?
Is there a problem with the police department and transparency? I don't think the department really cooperates with government. They hold information really closely. There's a controversy right now about releasing reports um, of officers' conduct who have been accused of racial bias in their everyday activities. And the department has refused to release those records, even though discipline records are now publicly available. But they won't dig a little bit deeper and release those. So I think there's something about transparency that the police department historically hasn't been great at. But now they continue this policy of uh, holding information close and not allowing the public to completely see internally what they're doing, and certainly when there are matters of legality involved, uh, for example, in the bias reports. We still don't have a firm grasp over the number of street stops there are, despite the monitor's report and despite the data that was given to the monitor to, to evaluate the neighborhood safety teams. We really don't have a firm grip over the number of um, stops that are happening on the street. Arrests are a different matter. We understand the number of arrests because the reports are mandated and they're actually quite detailed and they involve questions of um, um, conviction and, and sentencing. But uh, for these stops, that, um, most of which don't result in any kind of legal action, we really don't know the number of stops that are taking place. So I think there's a question of transparency that's, that's important. And I think also that there's been criticism of the level of cooperation of the police department with investigations, both by its own investigative body in the city, the, the Office of the Inspector General, uh, the George Floyd protests, and also with the state investigation as well. Now, of course, it's uncomfortable to be investigated, but there has to be a certain amount of cooperation and, and, and transparency in order to restore the public trust after those events have taken place. And just this week, we understand now that one of the highest uh, settlements in the history of litigation against the NYPD in the city has just been confirmed. Commissioner Caban certainly has his work cut out for him. Thanks so much for being on the show. That's Jeffrey Fagan, a professor at Columbia Law School. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It was a flawed process that was unacceptable, 
undemocratic and unconscionable. And the courts correctly concluded by sending the ability for the congressional lines to be drawn for the balance of the decade back to the independent redistricting commission. New York Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, the minority leader in the House, praised a state appellate court decision that the state congressional maps be redrawn, a ruling that could benefit Democrats in their 2024 fight to regain control of the House. The appellate division reversed a lower court and directed a state redistricting commission to start work on new proposed state congressional lines. The commission's first set of lines were rejected, and a lawsuit led to the 2022 lines being drawn by a court-appointed expert whom Jeffries called a, quote, unelected, out-of-state special master handpicked by an extreme right-wing judge. Republicans immediately announced their decision to appeal, which will leave the final decision on the maps to the state's highest court. Joining me is elections law expert Richard Brafald, a professor at Columbia Law School. So before we get into what the court ruled on, tell us about the history of New York's congressional map, how it got to where it is. So um, in the late 2010s, the New York voters amended the state constitution to create a new redistricting process that would involve what was called an independent redistricting commission. Not really all that independent. It was a bipartisan commission, which was charged with taking hearings, collecting data, and then submitting a plan to the legislature. The legislature is supposed to uh, the right to pass on it just with a simple up or down vote. If they voted no, the commission got a second shot at submitting a plan to the legislature up or down vote. The legislature voted no. The legislature could then write its own plans, but supposedly shaped by what the commission did. 2022 was the first time this plan went, this system was going to go into effect. Problem was that the, the independent commission, really a bipartisan commission, deadlocked on partisan grounds. Instead of submitting one plan, they submitted two plans that each only had half the votes of the commission. The legislature rejected that. The commission then was so deadlocked it was unable to submit a second plan. At that point, the legislature, which it was controlled by Democrats in both houses, wrote its own plan, which was, by most readings, pretty much tilted in favor of the Democrats and probably increased the likelihood that the Democrats would pick up some districts. The governor signed that. That was immediately sued. And the Republicans who sued rather smartly picked a uh, state court in upstate New York with a Republican judge who struck down the plan. It went through the appeals process and ultimately the New York Court of Appeals in a divided vote concluded both that the plan was unconstitutionally adopted because the proper process hadn't been followed, the Independent Redistricting Commission did not submit a second plan, and also that the plan the legislature adopted was a partisan gerrymander in violation of the state constitution. They then kicked it back to the upstate judge who appointed a special master to draw up a map. That map was drawn up and created a lot of competitive districts, which was then approved by the, by the judge. And that was the plan that was used in 2022. Under that plan, Republicans did pretty well in New York. They picked up a number of seats. It was a kind of a Republican-leaning year in New York, but no doubt the plan helped. What's happened now is that Democrats, supported by the state attorney general and the governor, have sued, saying the plan that was adopted in 2022 was only a temporary plan, or should be treated as only a temporary plan. This Court of Appeals had sent the matter back to the judge and the special master because they were running out of time. It was already spring 2022. You needed to have your primaries to get ready for the general election. They already had to change the primary calendar. So it has 
debatable whether what the court appeals was saying is we need a plan for the 2022 elections, or whether this plan is the plan that's going to be in effect for the entire decade. The plaintiffs or Democrats are saying all they said was that this was the plan for 2022. And what really should happen is that we should return to the process the state constitution envisions and kick this back to the Independent Redistricting Commission. And what they've asked for is an order the Independent Redistricting Commission to try again and submit a plan to the legislature, which would re-redistrict the New York congressional map. Explain why the appellate division decided that the state redistricting commission should redraw the state's congressional lines. Well, they basically said that the plaintiffs were right. One is that the Court of Appeals decision did not clearly say that this was for the entire decade, but that it could be read that this was just to get us through the 2022 election. And the state constitution, as amended by the voters, really expresses a preference for a process of having the Independent Redistricting Commission propose and the legislature resolve. And indeed, the constitution, when it was amended, said that if a court finds that there's a violation of the constitution and the plan, it should be sent back to be fixed, sent back to the legislature to be fixed. So the the appellate court, it's called the appellate division, they were divided through the two. But they said that this plan of sending it back to the the commission is both more consistent with what the Constitution of New York State requires and is not precluded by the Court of Appeals decision. So Republicans immediately announced their intention to appeal the case. Are their grounds to the Court of Appeals different from the grounds to the appellate division? It's going to be essentially the same argument. There is a technical question, really a question of New York procedure, about whether this lawsuit was brought too late. Technically, it's a, they're suing the Independent Redistricting Commission for failure to submit a second plan. It's not quite clear then there, there's a statute of limitations to when that can be brought. It's somewhat debatable when that expired. The lower court and the dissenters in the appellate division concluded that the suit was brought too late. The majority said no, it was fine. So that may be an issue in the Court of Appeals. But essentially, it's going to turn on what was the Court of Appeals' decision in 2022? Was it uh, this point, we need a plan to get us through the 2022 election and not more? Or is this the plan that is supposed to govern until 2030 so that there's nothing for the Independent Redistricting Commission to do? So what do you think is the better side of that argument? I think it's a very close question, and it's kind of hard to do this without having some awareness of the partisan consequences. But I think there's something to be said for the plaintiff's argument. The New York State Constitution is actually pretty clear that if a court were to find that the plan adopted by the legislature violates the Constitution, it should go back to the legislature to be fixed. That is what the constitutional amendment said. It was too late to do that in 2022, and also, frankly, the Court of Appeals didn't trust the legislature to get it done right. But the actual, the Constitution does indicate that that would have been a better result. And indeed, one of the judges who agreed with the majority that the plan violated the Constitution actually did not support the remedy of kicking it to the lower court and to the special master. So it's a pretty plausible argument. Another thing to, to take into account is at the time in 2022, it did look as though that Independent Redistricting Commission was going to be totally deadlocked on partisan grounds. But interestingly, one other part of the, the redistricting process, the, the, the map for the, the lower part of the state legislature, the assembly, that was also thrown out in a different lawsuit. 
And it was sent back to the Independent Redistricting Commission, which actually managed to come up with a bipartisan decision. That was very early this year, uh, which was then very quickly approved by the legislature. So there were some changes in the composition of the commission. Maybe everyone has learned, particularly the Democrats, have learned that you can't overreach. If you're overreach, you really lose. So there's reason to believe that it's now possible for that commission to actually come up with a plan, which it was not able to do in January of 22. And is it fair to say that the Court of Appeals is a little more liberal now, that the the chief judge who actually dissented from that right. 2022 decision is more liberal? Right. I mean, the big change actually is not who the chief judge is. As you point out, Chief Judge DeFiori, who wrote a very sharp opinion, sharply criticizing the legislature, both on procedural grounds and on substantive grounds, has been replaced as chief judge by Rowan Wilson. Rowan Wilson was already on the court. The big change is actually the appointment of Caitlin Halligan to Wilson's seat. She is a Democrat. She had been the New York State Solicitor General, but you know I don't think of her as a very particularly partisan figure. So a lot will, I think, it will all turn actually on what she thinks or what she concludes. Isn't this sort of what happens across the country that the party that's in control of the legislature? ends up with the advantage on redistricting or ends up doing the redistricting. That's the case, certainly, when it's the legislature that does redistricting, which is in most states. A number of states have adopted some version of an independent commission. Some commissions are more independent and more powerful than others. The New York one turned out to be not so independent and not so powerful. Mm -hmm. Or rather, it was independent, but because it was bipartisan, it was capable of deadlocking. In other states, the commissions have had some real power and have been independent of the legislature. And in other states, they've been independent, but the legislatures have basically disregarded them. So it's something that's playing out differently in different states. But you're right, certainly in most states, whoever is in charge of the legislature is in charge of redistricting. Is it fair to say that New York is going to be a a key battleground for Congress in 2024? I think that probably is fair to say. I mean, the Republicans have a narrow majority in the House of Representatives. The Republicans picked up four seats in New York last year, including two seats where they knocked out Democratic incumbents. I think the other seats they picked up were open seats. You know, some of those are in districts which are not very Republican. They're probably, in terms of voter registration, marginally Democratic. A lot of those seats are going to be challenged, even if the district lines don't change. Certainly, George Santos is going to be in some trouble as he fights to hold on to his seat. He might be replaced in a Republican primary, but that's going to be a district that's up for grabs. So there'll be a number of Republicans are freshmen, and they're in seats which are, they won, but are not very Republican. And those certainly are going to be hotly contested in 2024. Let's uh, switch to Alabama for a moment. So the lawmakers have until Friday to come up with new congressional districts. So just go back and explain why they're in that situation. Sure. Well, after Alabama did its redistricting in 2022, voting rights organizations sued, claiming that the district plan violated the Voting Rights Act. Alabama has seven districts. Six have strong white majorities. One is a black majority district, but Alabama is something like 27, 28 percent black. And the plaintiff sued, saying that the map was drawn unfairly. A properly drawn map would create two districts in which black voters would either have a majority or would have sufficient strength that they would have a fair chance of winning two seats. Initially, the federal district court in Alabama agreed with that, 
but Alabama went to the Supreme Court and got a stay. So the challenge lines were used in 2022. But then last month, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its decision on the merits and basically said that the district court was right, that the current plan does violate the Voting Rights Act, and that Alabama has to redo it. And the lower court basically gave them this Friday as their deadline so that they could have to write a new map. If the legislature doesn't get it done by Friday, presumably the court will do it. And even if the legislature does get it done, presumably there'll be a legal challenge. <laughs> we don't know what the map's going to look like. When the court heard the litigation, they looked at some maps that the plaintiffs had proposed to show that you could create a second black majority or second district where blacks could do well without having to create one that has an odd shape or that, you know, kind of looks like a gerrymandered district. So the plaintiffs had put up a number of model maps, but, but the court didn't adopt any of those. The court just looked at those to say it's possible to create two, you know, black opportunity districts that are you know, properly drawn. But ultimately, the legislature is supposed to draw the districts. So the dilemma for the legislature is how to do this. The legislature is supermajority Republican. The governor is Republican. The assumption is this second district will probably elect a Democrat, or there's a good chance. And so, you know, they're in the difficult position for them of trying to minimize the damage to them by trying to draw two districts which are not necessarily going to vote against Republicans. I think they know they're probably going to lose one, but they're presumably looking for a way to minimize the damage in the other one. And is there a similar lawsuit to the Alabama suit in Louisiana? That is correct, yes. A similar suit had been brought in Louisiana. It was stayed pending the resolution of the Alabama case that went to the Supreme Court. That is now live again. So what happens next in that case? Well, presumably there'll have to be a decision by the Louisiana court as to what happens next, to whether or not there is a violation and what the remedy should be. And I know that there's been talk of bringing similar suits in Georgia and possibly Texas. I think Texas might be in terms of a Latino district. But the theory was not clear until the Supreme Court sustained it in the Alabama case in June. Is it likely that these suits will be settled and the districts will all be drawn before the presidential election? I think there's a good chance. I mean, (laughs) these maps have been out there since last year. Presumably, if any plaintiffs have had their data ready, there will have to be litigation. Litigation does take some time, but certainly the Alabama one's going to be resolved. And I think the Louisiana one was also pretty far advanced. In effect, they've got nine months, I'd say, eight, nine months, because we've got to figure out the lines have to be in place in time for primaries next spring. So seven, eight, nine months, depending on the election schedule in the states, to bring the suit and get it resolved. It's not not clear that it can be done, but it's possible. And what's the timing on the New York case? Presumably, the Court of Appeals will make its decision sometime in the fall. Obviously, if they reverse and they throw out the suit, nothing happens. If they agree then the Independent Redistricting Commission will have to gear up and actually go through its process and come up with a map. And I think there will be a big burden on that commission to come up with some kind of a compromise so that it's not nearly as pro-democratic as the one that the legislature adopted in 2022. Thanks for those insights, Rich. That's Professor Richard Brafalt of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. 
I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.